Don't confuse your country with a particular political party in power and their bad or good ideas. Value your country more and in fact fight for your country in the realm of ideas. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, the viewers of this show probably won't be surprised to hear me suggest that Justin Trudeau is not a very deep thinker. What might shock you is that most, if not all, of the things that he tends to say in public are coming from people who are deep thinkers. And who are these deep, deep thinkers? Well, it just so happens that many of these ideas and many of the things that we hear about publicly are coming from places called think tanks. What is a think tank? Uh, what do they do there? Um, what does this mean for us? Why is this important? Well, today we have on the show somebody who is uh, very steeped in, in think tanks. In fact, he started his own and he's been working for a very long time in this space. He's a well-known public intellectual named Mark Milkey. Thanks for coming on the program today, Mark, to talk about the Aristotle Foundation. Thank you for having me on, Leighton. Yeah. So as we always do, uh, Mark, I don't know if you've seen the show, but we have a few framing aphorisms that, uh, of course, are in your honor. Won't surprise you to uh, learn today that I've picked a few, and it's very hard to pick a few, from uh, the great uh, Grecian philosopher Aristotle. Uh, but here, here goes. Here's a few, and hopefully you like these. One of, the, one of them I stole from your website. Uh, it says, the city exists not only for the sake of living, but rather primarily for the sake of living well. Uh, a second one is, dignity does not consist in possessing honors, but in deserving them. Uh, next, at his best, man is the noblest of all animals. Separated from law and justice, he is the worst. And finally, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a dying society. Um, and of course, that one has particular, unfortunately, particular application to the West, in my opinion. Who do we have in the show today? Well, Mark Milkey is a uh, PhD. He's the founder and president of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, which we're going to learn about today. He's been a public policy analyst uh, for many years, uh, author of six books, uh, 70 studies, over a thousand columns uh, over the past quarter century. Uh, he's also worked extensively in, in politics. Uh, he's worked with the Fraser Institute. Uh, he's written an exciting new book that we're going to talk about. And he's even uh, been involved in Alberta politics as uh, as being part of a, a big part of Jason Kenney's uh, uh, leadership campaign back in 2019, which we all know was highly successful. So uh, welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, we're excited to talk to you about the Aristotle Foundation. Thanks, Leighton. So think tanks, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, what are they? Well, they're really about ideas, and you can think of ideas as viruses, right? So uh, it's a partial uh, you know, comparison, perhaps. I mean, viruses are usually bad, um, but you can have good ideas or bad ideas. And um, they, they're what sink into culture. And culture leads politics. Uh, maybe another example is you know, it's a bit like a lake above a dam. Uh, if the lake is healthy, if the water is healthy and it flows down uh, over the dam and into the valley below, you have green fields, you have trees, you have farms where you can grow healthy food, you can drink clean water. Well, if the lake above the dam is polluted, well, then you get a polluted landscape down below or a dead landscape. 
And that's the problem with bad ideas versus excellent or good ideas. So that's what think tanks in essence do. And most think tanks would, would claim they're connected to reality, but not all are. Uh, depends on the subject matter, depends on the expertise. But that's what think tanks uh, who are credible and attached to reality try and do. Simply say, okay, you see a problem out there, let's analyze it, let's figure out a better way to go about this. And uh, I've known an example from the 20th century, um, uh, former institute I used to work for, the Fraser Institute, was founded in part to say, listen, um, you know, open markets will get more people out of poverty than will Marxism or, uh, or its sister socialism. So that was an example of trying to apply economic realities to the analysis of poverty in the 20th century. Same today. Uh, there are issues today that are different, but nonetheless, you have to apply the, um, the test of reality to them. So that's really what good think tanks are about and should do. And that's why we started the Aristotle Foundation to champion reason uh, and also democracy and an old fashioned word civilization, which just means how should we get along? A very, uh, you know, very ancient question from Aristotle on forward. Right. Uh, when I was doing some research uh, for our talk, Mark, I, I noticed that there are some, uh, let's say, left leaning think tanks in places like the, the United States uh, that re receive massive amounts of funding and are, have really had a great deal of impact on public policy and onto legislation and things like the environment, uh, the things like LGBTQ and and uh, and other other topics. Um, it seems to me, in looking at the uh, Aristotle Foundation, it wouldn't be fair to say that it's a small C conservative. It seems to be more of a classical liberal type of approach. But it seems to to me, and I wonder, I want to get your take on this. That uh, that's that there is sort of a renaissance, uh, or let's say a reaction, on the other side of the debate, where we're seeing more uh, think tanks like the Aristotle Foundation coming to the fore, and their ideas are making their way into public policy and governance. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, labels are always tough because they don't necessarily encapsulate what you know. Somebody may think of small C conservative differently than someone else. So labels are always tough because I'm not sure what's in people's mind when they use the label, right? Right. Um, and so I always try and focus people on the issues. And yeah. if you're attached to reality or should be, uh, that's really the core question. Um, so let me give you a good example from the 1867 project, the book that you know 20 authors and I just released. Um, the question, uh, one of the questions in the book is, you know, how to think about history. Um, but also there's another question in the book, are we an institutionally racist country? That's right. not necessarily a right or left question. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a question about, are we an institutionally racist country and how do you measure that? Well, Matthew Lau um, does try and do just that. He says, look, uh, we are not systemically institutionally racist like we were a century ago, right? His ethnic origin or background is Chinese and we were ethnic or we were institutionally racist. Canada was a century ago to ethnically right. Chinese people in Canada, but that was a century ago. And so he argues in the book, the 1867 project, we're not that now. And he does that based on looking at data from you know, race and income, ethnicity and income, whereas East Asian Canadians are at the top of the income heap. And he also explains the difference between, say, meeting a bigot today. That's not the same thing as claiming Canada in 2023 is like Alabama in 1923. Right. So it matters some great work, uh, you know, kind of digging down in the data and, and making that point, and I, I, and I would think, uh, argue, proving that Canada is not a systemically racist country. So those are not necessarily left-right questions. It's a question about, all right, here's an allegation, a claim. Um, can you prove it, um, or can we defeat this claim because we think it's wrong? You know, right. It's a reality check, really. Right. 
So uh, if we can, let's dive into some of these ideas, some of them, some of them that are that are talked about or mentioned on your website and also in the book. Um, I believe you wrote a piece uh, not so long ago that was about Pierre Trudeau. You said Pierre Trudeau was right about individual liberty, unlike his son. What did you mean by that? Sure. So that's the last chapter in the 1867 project, the book that we published. And what I try and do is the book lays out some of the problems in Canada. Uh, but at the end of the 1867 project, what I wanted to do is say, OK, uh, given um, that Canada is indeed a diverse country, and, and most people would buy that, mean, you know, um, you know, your background, your, your skin color, uh, maybe your faith or lack thereof, um, and it will be increasingly uh, diverse eth ethnically um, and racially in the years ahead. You want to make sure that people then unite around ideas, good ideas, right? Because you can't you can't unite around a skin color because you know, then you end up with a racist society. You can't unite around someone's ethnicity because all of us have a background that's different. Um, so you want people, and this is the lesson of human history, to unite around laudable good ideas. And in the Western tradition anyway, those have been things like um, the rights of the individual, the rights of women, um, freedom of religion, of the press, um, you know, democracy. So what I do at the end of the book uh, is to say, listen, Pierre Trudeau understood the, the necessity to treat people as individuals. This is, and I disagreed with Pierre Trudeau on, you know, I was a kid when he was prime minister, but um, then and now um, I, I look at his ideas and most of them I would disagree with, right? He was a very sort right. of collectivist in economics, but the one thing he was right on was when he fought Quebec, for example, on uh, their ethnic politics. Um, and their language politics, where they discriminated then and now against the English-speaking minority, or in their history against other minorities. And Pierre Trudeau was a classical liberal in that sense, and an individual rights advocate in that sense. He despised that. And he said, uh, in a famous speech in 1992, when he was fighting the Charlottetown Accord referendum, um, that you receive, uh, that your rights predate the state, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but the, the state gets their rights from you, not the other way around. And that's important to understand. Um, and that is the tradition in the Anglosphere. Uh, right. And there's a bit of that also in France, obviously, after 1789. And right. uh, so that's, uh, Pierre Trudeau was right about that. And when you forget that and you start dividing people up by race or ethnicity or gender, um, you're, headed for, uh, you're headed for trouble. Because again, you can't unite people around something that by definition, <laughs> they are not. Right. right. I can't change identities. Right. One of, one of the sort of themes, if I can put it that way, in looking at uh, your website and, and uh, maybe one of the founding principles of the Aristotle Foundation is this idea that we can unite under a banner, not necessarily a collective banner, but we can be, we can be united by ideas. And just coming back to your point there, I, you share this really wonderful story of your own family history where your family immigrated from uh, from Europe, I believe, Ukraine, and that that whole story of how you your family came to Canada, and and really became part of the Canadian uh, family. It used to, we used to call it the Canadian mosaic, and that's really part of what you're talking about, isn't it? Your your the Aristotle Foundation is very concerned with the division that's being caused by bad ideas, and also concerned with the promulgation of good ideas that could potentially unite us. Is that a fair way of of characterizing some of the, uh, the, you know, some of what the Aristotle Foundation is all about. It is Leighton, indeed. And so, what I try and do in, in uh, the book and, and also the foundation, the Aristotle Foundation, um, and your references to yeah, my grandmother on my dad's side, 
uh, who came from Ukraine. She was a three-year-old girl when her family tried to move to Canada in 1914. Yeah, it's an incredible it story. Yeah, blocked by the uh, you know the emergence of World War One and ended up traveling around Europe and including Siberia uh, in Russia. Uh, Siberia for several years as well, but didn't make it to Canada for 13 years after that. Finally came here to Edmonton in 1927. Now, my grandmother never learned how to read. Um, she cleaned houses uh, before she got married uh, to my grandfather, who was a German who emigrated from Poland. Um, both of them came from, you know, a, a poor background. I think my grandfather had a grade three ed education, uh, survived the Great Depression, all of that. Um, and when I talked about this in a video for the Aristotle Foundation on our website, what I tried to point out is these days you hear people simplistically look at the economy or other people and go, oh, uh, they've done okay in life. They must have come from privilege. Right. Uh, and in fact, no, most of our ancestors and most of human history were dirt poor. And same with Canada until maybe the last 50 years, there's been a lot more wealth created. But when right. you think about, say, pre-World War II, most people were dirt poor, including my grandparents. My own mother and father lost everything in the 1980s due to a deep recession then. Um, and, and in fact, it's a misunderstanding. So when you hear people talk about privilege these days, they actually misunderstand the economy. And this matters even to arguments over history. When French fur traders came here 500 years ago, they were not privileged. They didn't sort of come to a continent with a 30, you know, or a $3 trillion economy or a country with a $3 trillion economy. You know, they captured animals and traded furs, you know, with the inhabitants, you know, here then, people now we call indigenous. And they created the economy, so to speak. Right. Um, steal it from anyone. And that's important to understand. So all of our ancestors, I would argue, including pre-Confederation, helped build what we know today. Uh, you know, if you're a Spanish conquistador, sure, okay, you stole some gold, you know, in Latin America, what we call Latin America today. But that's not the history of the Anglosphere by and large. Right. So it's important to understand economies are created. Most of our ancestors worked hard to get where we are today, and we should be grateful to them instead of accusing, accusing one another of privilege. Yeah, I so agree with you about this concept of gratitude. Um, and I, know, I note that a lot of what you write about is you're very opposed to the politics of division. And in that vein, another piece that you wrote is, was about cancel culture. You wrote a piece recently uh, saying it's time to cancel, cancel culture. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, about what cancel, cancel culture is and why it's so, it's so damaging? Sure. Uh, I mean, division is okay, by the way. Uh, you know, if you divide, you know, if you're telling me the emperor is fully clothed and I think he's naked, we will divide based on right. my, my analysis of what I'm seeing right. and, and what I think you're not uh, or covering up um, or not telling the truth on. So division is sometimes okay uh, in the pursuit of truth. But the division that's happening today, you're right, is basically attacking other people, other, attacking their backgrounds, dividing people in terms of hiring based on race and ethnicity and gender and that sort of thing. So there's unnecessary division being created today. Cancel culture is part of that problem, I would argue. So one of the authors in the 1867 project, and the subtitle is you know, why we should cherish Canada, not cancel it. Um, one of the authors is Greg Piasatsky, member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, um, History goes back several hundred years, you know, various, you know, lineage in his, in his bloodline. And Greg writes a wonderful chapter on Johnny McDonald saying, look, yes. uh, he's not the villain he's been made out to be. And we should not cancel Johnny McDonald because despite his imperfections, which, by the way, all of us have, uh, you, me, the critics today, uh, anyone in human history, you know, before, now and in the future, uh, despite imperfections in Johnny McDonald, despite some views from the 19th century, which 
you know, he lived in the 19th century. Why would, you, why would you expect him to have views other than those in the 19th century? Despite that, you can look at John A. Macdonald and go, you know something, in the main, he tried to help, for example, indigenous Canadians with the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police, precisely to avoid the kind of um, brutality and murdering that was happen happening in the American West at that point. Um, so was Johnny McDonald racist? Yeah, probably, in his views towards indigenous peoples. Did he also think there were human beings that deserved not to endure what was happening in the United States? That is true as well. And you can, you can say that both ideas were true because they were. Uh, Johnny McDonald also tried to alleviate famine on the prairies. He was criticized by uh, his opposition, the liberal opposition of the day. He was a conservative, but he was criticized by the liberal opposition for spending too much. And he defended spending money to alleviate famine on the prairies. Um, and so there are these nuances in history that these days, today, you, you often don't hear about. And Greg Piasatsky does a wonderful job in the book, in the 1867 project of saying, are you really sure you want to cancel people in history um, without, first of all, a full understanding of who they are? And, and second, um, do you understand actually how they contributed to a better country overall? They weren't perfect. We're not perfect now. But one of the analogies I like to use with people is Canada, like any country or any civilization, is like an oak tree. And we're not talking Mao's China. We're not talking Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. But for a liberal democratic country like Canada in the Anglosphere, it's like an oak tree. And just because right. there were imperfections in human history, in our history, women didn't receive the vote until the 1910s. Um, indigenous people didn't have the vote restored until 1960. That was wrong. It should have happened long before. Uh, and But that was the reality of history at the time. Those are diseased limbs that we pruned off, so to speak, and it made the oak tree of Canada stronger and better. You don't take down the oak tree because of imperfections in history or now. What you do is you prune and you make the tree better. That's how we should think about human history. Did this person help contribute to a better oak tree, a better country, a better Canada or not? And we would argue in the 1867 project, plenty of people pre and post Confederation contributed to what we uh, have come to know and love as Canada today and why it is uh, a wonderful country. Yeah, that, that cancel culture chapter, by the way, I, I did read the book and I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, the cancel culture chapter um, uh, was of particular interest to me because uh, I, I quite agree with you about Sir John A. Macdonald, but I, I was actually the subject of cancel culture myself. Uh, in 2020, your, your former client, uh, Jason Kenney, was good enough to appoint me to a board to select judges in this province, the province of Alberta. And uh, I guess I made the mistake of making a public pledge that I would select candidates based upon their meritocratic uh, merits, uh, you know, as opposed to any sort of, uh, you know, intersectional characteristics or quote unquote diversity, which seems to be the main criteria that our current justice minister is using to select judges. And uh, so by, by way of segue, I know this isn't in your book, uh, Mark, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you're, you're, very, you're, you're very keen and hooked into these issues, there have been recent revelations uh, in the National Post about how judges are being selected in Canada. Uh, and I believe almost 80% are, it's being revealed are Liberal Party donors in the Trudeau era. Um, as, as someone who's working in, 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 in think tanks and the things that you write about, is that something of concern to you? And, and why should that be of concern to Canadians? Well, I think every political party in power probably has a bit of a partisan edge when they appoint judges, right? 
Um, yeah. And maybe a philosophical edge as well, right? Uh, if not a strict litmus test, it will certainly look or appoint like-minded people or try to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that's, that's part of politics, unfortunately. Um, in terms of the diversity question, uh, look, natural diversity, or put it this way, organic diversity is a good thing. Agreed. Uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, when you encounter others from other cultures, um, other countries, uh, you know, I lived in Japan for two years. There's things about Japan I wish I could import wholesale here, certain attitudes or practices. So um, organic diversity is a good thing. I would, I would put it that way. But forced uh, diversity or forced outcomes, uh, again, based on irrelevant characteristics, such as skin color, ethnicity, or that sort of thing, is disastrous. One of the examples, we actually did deal this with this in the 1867 project, Grab Jaswell, an author who actually hails right. from Goa, India, who's not even Canadian, but his sons are here attending university. Grab started to notice that Canadians were picking on themselves unnecessarily and said, why are you guys beating up on yourselves in a great country? And he gave the example, I mean, on the question of diversity, where he knew a woman from India who emigrated to uh, Canada and ran in a provincial legislature to be a politician and succeeded. He didn't say which province. Um, she would later claim that she was the victim of racism, even though she made it. She became a politician in that province and uh, and yet claimed Canada was such a racist country. And Gaurav said, look, I'm in Goa, India, and I moved here from another state in India. I can't get elected in this state because I'm not from here. Uh, you want to see racism? That's it. Yeah. Right. But don't tell me you're some sort of super racist country in Canada when, for the most part, you're not. You can meet individual bigots. Mm -hmm. So, again, people that focus on diversity for the sake of diversity miss the point. You should be looking at people as individuals. Uh, you should, in hiring, you should look for people with qualifications and merit. Um, and you shouldn't have artificial categories that exclude some uh, and include others. That's right. always been a problem in human history. People find a way to discriminate against people, treat them as part of some collective and not as an individual. There's no perfect science to this sometimes. I mean, you can have two equally qualified candidates and you got to figure out who might fit in best to your organization. Um, so it, it's sometimes more of an art than a science. But one way to, to have a long term disaster is to start picking people based on how they look. Yeah, it's a very anti uh, Aristotelian idea, isn't it? Well, it's a very uh, anti individual uh, idea. Yeah. It's a very liberal idea. Right. Again, in most human history, that's what people do. They look at you and go, you're not part of my tribe. Get out. Yeah. So to do that now under the guise of diversity is disastrous. And I think many people are well-intentioned in this. They actually yeah. think they can make up for past discrimination with new discrimination, mm -hmm. but they can't. I mean, a famous example I like to give, despite his recent scandals that deserved, what if you're the, you know, the grandson of Bill Cosby? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, do you deserve to be hired because of your skin color over some, I don't know, poor guy from the Ozarks? Um, you know, his skin color is, you know, pale. But right. like, I mean, think about the absurdity of that. I mean, you've just mm -hmm. preferred. Uh, or as I told someone who had a hiring position at a university here in, in Calgary, um, where it was going to be based on skin color only. And I said to the dean, um, it was a private conversation, so I won't say which university and who. But um, I said to the dean, really, you're going to advertise a position based on skin color? And uh, the skin color you've advertised is not that, say, of someone who's Jewish. So you would tell straight-faced uh, the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor that she would not be eligible to be hired at your university because she's the wrong skin color? Right. What are you thinking? Yeah. And of course, you really had no cogent answer to that.
Yeah. So again, to go down the road of division based on unchangeable identities is a disaster in the present and in, and make and in making. Yeah, it reminds me of something that uh, I heard Jordan Peterson talk about in terms of uh, bureaucratic thinking, uh, short-sighted thinking, where they'll you know they will come up with a a quick fix that looks like it's a good idea. And you just cited an example. Well, we want more diversity. And so we'll advertise only for people of a certain skin color. But what happens is two things. Number one, uh, they they make the, the initial problem worse in the short run. But then the computations and permutations downstream of doing that are just disastrous. And they create all kinds of problems that are actually worse than the original one that they're trying to solve. And I guess maybe that highlights the importance of think tanks where people are actually thinking about good ideas that are sustainable and that actually uh, are good and good in the se- in the real sense of being uh, of, of ha- actually helping people uh, and increasing human flourishing. Um, well, on this, yeah, it, go it helps the importance of thinking, um, yeah. really, or it highlights the importance of thinking for sure on these issues. Right. Yeah. The American economist Thomas Sowell has uh, done lots of work on race and incomes for years. Yeah. He grew up in Harlem and, and, and yeah, he's uh, just brilliant, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. So it highlights the importance of thinking about these issues critically. Uh, I mean, Sol gives a famous example because often the justification for this is again, the difference when you, when you look at outcomes between cohorts in statistics, right? This skin color versus that skin color, ethnicity versus that ethnicity. What Thomas Sol tries to point out famously one time is let's look at fishing fleets around the world. The Italians dominated them historically. Why is that? Is it because they were biased against the Swiss in the fishing industry? No, because the Swiss didn't live on coastlines, the Italians did. There are other things that matter to outcomes other than, say, skin color. There's a lot of other things that matter to outcomes. Geography, in the example I just gave. So it's important to think critically about these issues. And I think a lot of Canadians in what's called the DEI movement, diversity, equity, inclusion movement, don't think critically. They just yeah. accept nostrums uh, and explanations yeah. that are not valid. Right. One of the things that uh, you wrote about that I found really interesting, a piece that I, I found on your webpage, Mark, is um, you say you, 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 there's sort of an apology. You say why all Canadians should be monarchists. Well, and I quite agree. But, I, but would you want to explain what, what kind of the crux of that article? Sure. Uh, I wrote this about a year ago, but uh, you can find it at AristotleFoundation.org. But uh, the point of the article was to say, listen, Canadians are not revolutionaries. So we know Americans were in 1776 and the French were in 1789, but fundamentally, Canadians are not revolutionary. Maybe this is where, why we're so quasi-nice or you know, sometimes too docile. But uh, you know, Canada was founded on, on really the, the outcome of the, uh, the 1776 revolution down south, right? The loyalists right. who came up here from Boston and New York and elsewhere. And then you added the rest of the country later. But it was a response, in some sense, to the American Revolution. And, uh, you know, British North America is it once, was once known. So um, I point out for, for those who, uh, again, want to be critical of Canadian history or, or dump it all down um, some rabbit hole um, or rewrite it in some Orwellian sense, that, uh, you know, that's, that's very revolutionary. And it's actually very dangerous. You build on the past, again, unless you're, well, uh, yeah, unless you're a revolutionary like Stalin or Mao, but in which case they were trashing their own past, really. Yeah. So an evolutionary approach is usually better and safer to political change. And that's what Canada has been. So, um, look, it's not, it doesn't mean you have to keep the monarchy forever. But I was I wrote the column 
about the monarchy in the context of people who want to trash Canadian history, Canadian founders, the British Empire. And also there are some very good things about the British Empire. And this is where people don't make distinctions any longer, or some people don't in our in our society. Right. The yeah. British Empire um, was not the Russian Empire. It was not um, the Spanish Empire. It was based on the rule of law, the rights of the individual, which eventually spread to more and more individuals. Um, it was based, uh, the, and the British Empire, for example, had one very good component, uh, among others, it was the empire that sought to abolish slavery. Um, and no empire in history had done that. And so when people look back at, at uh, history in simplistic terms and go, yes, but, you know, the British had slaves for a while or, you know, um, whoever. Uh, yes, but they, they internally came to uh, oppose slavery. And then the British in particular spent a lot of time and, and treasure uh, and blood fighting slavery around the world in their empire and beyond on the high seas. So to not understand that in the case of the monarchy, long answer, short question, the monarchy represents that tradition of the rule of law uh, yeah. and some very positive developments in human history is to really, to use the oak tree analogy again, pour poison uh, or acid on the root, the roots of Canada, which is in part uh, the British empire. Mm -hmm. And there are things to cherish about that. You don't have to accept everything that was done in the name of the British empire, but you might want to think twice about uh, upending it or at least respect for it. Uh, based on some uh, really ridiculous notion that everybody in 1700 or 1800 or 1900 should have thought exactly like us today, or we should cancel them, ignore them, and rewrite history. Yeah. Well, one of the things about that slavery that slavery example that you cite in thinking of people like Lord Wilberforce is that uh, that's somewhat unique in history in that uh, a, a, a racial uh, majority uh, fought so hard to to free uh, a clear racial minority and uh, that's a part of that story that isn't talked about enough the other part of that monarchy uh piece that really caught my attention i'd like to sort of get get your thoughts on this is you talk about the united empire loyalists and uh it, it seems to me and may, maybe i'm incorrect in this and, and if i am tell me that there there seems to be a a a, a, a sort of enduring fear still or a, almost a dislike in southern Ontario, in Ontario, towards the Americans, uh, particularly, you know, the Republican MAGA variety. And uh, I've often wondered, and I know you're very knowledgeable in Alberta politics as well, why Alberta is so much disliked by, by that part of the country. Uh, and, and here's my question. Could it be that perhaps the people who are the descendants of the United Empire loyalists are maybe applying some of that that fear or, or, or dislike for the Americans to Alberta. After all, I, I, it seems to me that sometimes uh, some of the labels that get applied to Alberta by Central Canada uh, sound very much like what people say about MAGA Republicans. Am I, it, what do you think about that? Well, you've accidentally hit on to what my PhD uh, Oh, really? <laughs> which was anti-Americanism in Canada, an analysis wow. of the rhetoric. And you're on to something. Look, I, I should disclose, first of all, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. I think he's uh, ridiculous and a danger to democracy down south. So I'm not yeah. a big fan of the MAGA movement. Right. I think it's a little reckless. And I prefer the examples of Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. and even George Bush Jr. who appealed to people's better angels, as did other yeah. American presidents. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not a big fan of what's happening there yeah. uh, on that front. But it's, it doesn't result from anti-Americanism. It results in my analysis of Donald Trump's um, narcissistic five-year-old tendencies. 
Yeah. Um, but that's perhaps another episode. What seems but, to have got they seem to have gotten worse since he lost in 2020. Yes. Well, and he made some false claims about the election. And so I think it's all about Donald Trump. And the American founders well understood the dangers, not of populism. Populism, I think, to some degree is fine. That's democracy. But uh, the dangers of um, giving power to one person. And Donald Trump doesn't seem to understand that or care. And they deliberately set up the House of Representatives, the Senate and the White House and the judiciary to spread power out among various branches. Uh, the danger in human history is when one person, one institution has all the all the power um, and as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts right. absolutely. Right. Uh, Mr. Trump doesn't seem to care about that a whit uh, or understand it. Uh, but back to the anti-Americanism in Canada. Uh, sure, I think you're onto something, um, at least historically. Yeah, for sure. The, the United Empire loyalists were anti-American and perhaps understandably in their context. I mean, they were, they were chased out of New York and Boston, loyalist cities of the day, uh, tarred and feathered quite literally, lost their fortunes, lost their properties. So I think that was uh, that's their experience. And um, out west, it's a bit different um, on the prairies and perhaps in the case of Alberta, um, you know, other than obviously indigenous you know, peoples uh, on, on, the, on the land who are here. I mean, um, other settlers later on, everybody was a settler if you go back long enough, right? The indigenous right. people came across the Bering Strait 20,000 years ago, or their ancestors yeah. did. But let's say much later settlers, right? Europeans, the Brits, others. Um, settling, say, Alberta over the last 150 years. A very different, um, perhaps, attitude towards the uh, United States because there's no longer really a fear of them coming over the border again, right, as was the, the fear in the 19th century in central Canada. Uh, and again, an understandable fear, uh, even if the anti-Americanism went to an extreme. But out west, I mean, 100 years ago, your great other is what? <laughs> you know, it's Ottawa. It's right. I mean, You feel just an imperial capital is... Um, you know, uh, not London, but Ottawa, you know, I mean, all the arguments farmers have, right? And, and central banks and the rest are against the banks in central Canada. And so certainly in the West and in Alberta, maybe in Saskatchewan to a lesser degree, there was this, um, this fear of, of central Canada that just didn't get us. And that's still a problem today. So I think what developed out here is, um, is a different culture. And then also there was American immigration up here. I would also argue this. I actually think, um, Alberta, at least if you define it as, say, uh, you know, uh, most Albertans you know, favoring more free economy, uh, individual rights, that sort of thing. That's actually a very historically Canadian impulse. Um, it was the American progressive movement that uh, became much more liberal, as we understand it today, or you mm -hmm. know, in some cases, uh, economically interventionist with the mm -hmm. rise of socialism and Marxism in the 20th century. Um, but if you look at classic Canadian liberals like Wilfrid Laurier, um, they have a freedom narrative um, that was completely British classic liberal, right? Uh, right. Again, liberal in the basic 19th century John Stuart Mill sense mm -hmm. that that the state had to explain to you why they wanted to take your, away your rights, not the other way around. So you should have freedom of religion, freedom of, um, you know, uh, the press, uh, you know, pro private property, that sort of thing. Uh, and this was, and, and in fact, it was the, the Liberal Party in Canada. Um, that was more pro-freedom than, say, the Conservative Party of John A. Macdonald on things like tariffs and economics and taxes and the rest of it. Um, and this this flipped later on in the 1960s and 1970s under Pierre Trudeau. Right. But, but back to your original question, for sure, I think there was a different development out, out west and in Alberta that led to, we don't fear Americans here. You know, they've invested in the, you know, the energy sector, for example, since the 1940s. Um, and it's just more of an optimistic, can-do spirit, entrepreneurial spirit in Alberta, which is very in touch with 
really Canadian roots on such issues. Right, right. Talking about uh, Alberta and also talking about think tanks, um, what seems to be happening in Alberta is that some of the ideas from think tanks are finding their way into policy and into legislation. One example, I think, is the is the Alberta Sovereignty Act, uh, which is an idea that, that came out of an Alberta think tank, as you know, um, and is now sort of at the focal point of, of something of an ideological schism that's going on in Canada. The the Ottawa vision of, of, of Canada is very, very much at odds of what uh, people in Alberta seem to want, at least in particular in terms of the Alberta government. Um, I, I'm interested to know um, what you think about this sort of growing schism uh, that it has that is emerging between uh, Ottawa and the West, and also what the role of think tanks like yours and others is going to be in developing public policy in that context. Well, um, the Aristotle Foundation was created to champion reason, democracy, and civilization, or another way to look at it is to make people think, uh, but to look at some issues that others have not looked at. So for example, we're, we're not doing Alberta policy on the issues you just mo- mentioned, although I've done some in the past for other yeah. think tanks, yeah. including the Fraser Institute, some analysis, or in my own writing uh, and in past books. Um, nonetheless, I'm very familiar with sort of the authors of, of really the ideas for for the Sovereignty Act and others, uh, but also 20 years ago, there was something called the Firewall Letter. 21 yes, years ago, I remember it well. By yeah. Stephen Harper, Tom Flanagan, Barry Cooper, all of whom I know, and others on that. Uh, I was critical of that at the time, and frankly, I'm still mostly critical of some of the ideas in it. And here's why: um, if you get down to brass tacks, and I've written about this, and people can find it if they if they Google my you know my work on this. Um, I don't think there's any sense in, for example, Alberta collecting its own income tax. You would create two tax bureaucracies, frustrate taxpayers to death. Um, and it, it's not worth imitating Quebec on that. All you would do is spend a lot of extra money and frustrate taxpayers. Or, um, you know, there may be a reason to have your own police force in Alberta for, you know, jurisdictional reasons. Uh, but again, the federal government now pays, I believe it's one third of the cost of the RCMP. Why would we let uh, Ottawa off the hook for paying one of the few bills they pay for Albertans and load it on? <laughs> That's a good tax? point. Yeah. So I've been critical for some time since the firewall letter and iterations of the same on some of these issues. Um, look, I think the only thing that might make sense, um, and and the former premier, you know, Kenny understood this, was you know maybe you have an Alberta pension plan only because then you would get lower rates because of a, a younger population and force rates up in the rest of the country. But that's about the only negotiating card you have with the federal government. I mean, um, there's a lot here, Leighton, but I mean, the problem is I, I don't like um, I don't like posturing for the sake of posturing. My, my thing right. is reality, I said at the right. beginning. So on this particular issue, how does this, how does some of these ideas help Alberta? We have our own police force or we, you know, we collect our own provincial income tax. You cannot withhold a federal income tax from the federal government. You're a lawyer. It would be struck down by the courts in a heartbeat. Right. And you would subject those who did all sorts of lawsuits from, you know, the federal side of things. Right. You'd create chaos. And I don't think, as some people think, that Quebec is the model to follow. Its per capita income is on, on the level of Mississippi and Missouri. Sorry, uh, mm. and uh, Louisiana, rather. Right. Uh, they're not a model to follow. Uh, they chased away investment for decades and still do because of their idiotic, you know, anti-minority policies uh, and their disruption. So I'm not a fan of following Quebec on this. I mean, I think rather I think we should, again, push good ideas 
Uh, let me back up as well. I think part of the problem, obviously, I mean, look, I'm, I grew up in British Columbia, um, which voted against the Charlottetown Accord in 1992 as a right. with a greater proportion than did Albertans because right. we didn't like, and I was in Alberta at the time, but uh, growing up in British Columbia, we didn't like special status for Quebec. Right. And um, uh, so, look, I'm not, it's not that I'm not aware of the frustrations or don't share the frustrations. But if you look at the American context, for example, why did Ronald Reagan and small C conservatism and free markets and good ideas and other things that Reagan and others promoted triumph in the 1980s? It wasn't because, um, you know, of a particular state, you know, really walling itself off. Uh, frankly, the population mattered, right? The American South and West, if you look at California, the biggest popular, the most populous state in the union, um, which you know elected Ronald Reagan in droves and governor gubernatorial elections and then the presidency, the American West and South had the population to combat, um, say, the Northeast, which was much more liberal in the 1970s sense. That's not the case in Canada. Like it or not, we have a smaller population out West. Now it's growing. Alberta has been growing for a long time. Uh, but that's a long-term remedy to the problem of, say, if you don't like central Canadian policy on something. Right. Um, there's a lot there late. I just don't yeah. think, for example, that, that um, fighting within Alberta, uh, I mean, I, I, is going to solve anything or, or some of these ideas are going to solve anything, which is why I was critical of the firewall letter 21 years ago, and I'm still critical of some of these ideas today. I would rather make it more painful for provinces like Quebec, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. to operate with impunity, to discriminate against English speakers in their province. Um, right. I would rather reform at the federal level as you'd have to do it equalization, which I know a lot about because I've probably written 10 studies on the program right. uh, in a way that gets less money to Quebec. Um, I would abolish transfers altogether if I could, uh, if I could, you know, flip mm -hmm. out and switch tomorrow. And, mm -hmm. But there are other things to do. I just, you know, but there is a necessity for sure to stand up to the federal government if you're Alberta, in Alberta right now on issues of energy and the rest. I just don't think some of the sovereignty uh, proposals um, that people have are going to work uh, unless you're a full full-on sovereignist unless you're a full-on separatist and you have the equivalent of Rani Levesque um, I don't think some of these other ideas uh, are going to do much they're certainly not going to make Ottawa shake in their boots yeah so that's not a satisfactory answer uh, but I think the problem in this country um, really is Quebec to be blunt about it um, right. because they've caused some of the policies at the federal level that are so problematic for Alberta and other provinces so right. I would rather focus on the problem that is Quebec and make them embarrassed for some of the nonsense that, that they've initiated into uh, what is otherwise an Anglophone country. Uh, that's where I would focus my attention as opposed to fighting in Alberta. Interesting. Uh, one of the things that you talk about a lot uh, on in terms of your writing is um, sort of this pervasive woke ideology and how destructive it is. And this that makes total sense because I, I you know, I, I think I can gather from let's say looking at nicomachean ethics <laughs> what aristotle would say about woke ideology um but you talk a lot about this in the in the concept not only of why woke ideology is bad in terms of trying to create a utopian uh world but also uh in terms of cautioning uh people who are against it to to resist the temptation to to act like the quote-unquote enemy and one piece that you wrote is Memo to the right, stop acting like the left. What was the message that you were trying to convey there? Um, sure. There, well, there's a lot there in terms of, uh, I try not to use, you know, um, words that are now overused too much, like, well, right. uh, but by that, I, I think you and I probably mean 
sort of anti-reality um, ideas, or just this, uh, again, tied to cancel culture, uh, you know, or, or other things like, again, we should be ashamed of Canadian history as opposed to understanding Canada's uh, developing oak tree, um, that sort of thing. Right. So uh, the context of that, um, you know, is, is that um, what you want to do, uh, look, for the 20th century, um, people we now call, you know, small C conservatives. Again, you may be big C conservative. That's the partisan affiliation. I've mostly stayed away from politics, except for the time where I helped the former premier, then opposition leader with this platform. But I've tried to stay, stay, to stay away from partisan politics for the most part, just because I'm more interested in making sure the ideas get out there. And right. I'm not necessarily as concerned about whether, you know, uh, political party A or B gets into power um, with rare exception. So um, on, on that article that we're on that column, my point was it, it, too many people, for example, seem to be enthralled by, um, well, um, the American example of Donald Trump, um, right. who I picked on again a moment ago and will again now. Um, look, this is a person who doesn't seem to grasp that um, the beauty of the Anglosphere and what he was given was a country, despite being born out of revolution, um, has mostly hewed to the rule of law and uh, peaceful transitions of power. And people now that sort of want to make excuses for violence, like um, January the 6th a few years ago, um, or want to get conspiratorial, uh, or want to be anti-science, um, you know, they need to give their head a shake because um, what the 20th century was about, at least on the right, um, was about reality recognizing policy. And, in, and, and the 20th century is all about the debate between uh, communism and capitalism or free markets and, you know, way too much intervention. And um, conservatives in the 20th century said to those who were socialist or communist, your policies won't work. They won't relieve people from poverty. In fact, they'll make it worse. You'll also concentrate power in the hands of um, tyrants and dictators, which is exactly what happened. Your prescriptions are wrong. In other words, the conservatives, the libertarians of the 20th century, the classical liberals too, were reality recognizers. And if you get into the 21st century now, and some people want to take a bender um, and, and again, you know, imitate the left on anti-reality thinking, then they're going to make the same mistake. Eventually hit a brick wall. So that's what the column is about. Um, you know, those on the right really shouldn't take their talking points or their analytical frameworks from the left. Right. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about gender or whether you're talking about economics or whether you're talking about uh, the need to resolve things peacefully. Um, and I guess part of that, uh, now that I think about it as well, like, was it was again about, um, you know, the peaceful transfer of power. Like, don't worship demagogues and think a man will save you. Right. There's there's an old scriptural injun injunction. Put not your faith in princes or trust in princes. Right. Um, and the American founders who were mostly not religious understood that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know those in the British tradition, um, you know, the, the idea of responsible government. They understood that uh, men are subject to to think they can solve everything. And if you only give them all the marbles, they'll they'll make life better for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, well, don't worship Donald Trump or any other politician. They may do some things that you agree with now and then, and that's fine. Uh, but don't think they're going to solve all your problems and don't give them all the power to do so, because I guarantee they will be corrupted if they're not corrupt already. Right. And, and one of the things you also talk about, um, not necessarily in that piece, but in your other writings, is that uh, let's not tear down our country. Let's not denigrate our country. Let's mm -hmm. celebrate this robust history of, of freedom. Let's teach our children about it. 
uh, let's inculcate that culture. Let's get back to that, uh, uh, you know, love of country uh, because that's that's really a sustaining idea that we can all unite around, right? Right, and I get the frustration again. Look, there are, there are many policies I disagree with today. Uh, I've spent my ent- entire career fighting bad ideas, hoping to replace them with good ideas and policy. Like, you know, is with the Taxpayers Federation, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, you know, or now at the Aerosol Foundation. So I get people's frustration. But um, don't confuse your country with a particular political party in power and their bad or good ideas. Value your country more. And in fact, fight for your country in the realm of ideas. This is what I've always tried to do. It's why I've written books. It's why I've founded a think tank now with others. Um, It's why I've got 30 senior fellows at the Aerosol Foundation who are going to do work work for us, starting to do that. It's why we published a book, 20 of us, the 1867 Project, because we think it's important to communicate what's been best about Canada uh, so, yeah, don't imitate the left um, also on the, uh, well, I just hate Canada. I want to leave it because I don't agree with policies. People on the left said that when Stephen Harper was in power. Um, those on the right shouldn't say it now and, again, confuse a particular political party. Uh, we, you know, they come and go and their ideas in, the, in those political parties come and go and change. Yeah. Don't confuse political parties and politicians with your country. You own it, um, not them. Right. That's an, a very important distinction you just made between the politics of a country and the nation itself. And honestly, I, I found myself uh, falling into that somewhat of of late being less patriotic than I, you know, than I once was just because I really, really dislike and abhor the policies of the current uh, government in Ottawa. Uh, but that that's that's an important distinction. That I think we should all reflect upon. I'm glad I appreciate you you making that one. Mark, this has been a really illuminating conversation. I knew it would be. We've learned a lot. Uh, this is a part of the program on our show where we turn to something called the reading list. And uh, it perhaps won't surprise you today that the books we're featuring are ones that are connected to you. Uh, firstly, the one, the book you've been talking about, the 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished and Not Cancelled. Uh, and here the description is Canada is an open, diverse, and full of opportunities. So why is it under attack? You've talked about this book throughout the program, uh, but uh, do you want to do you want to just elaborate a little bit on on what the sort of the thesis of the book is? And I know it's a collection of essays. Uh, I enjoyed reading it very much. Uh, it actually, I don't know if this is the intention, but I came away from the book with a much more optimistic uh, feeling sense about my country than I had before I picked up the book. Uh, you know, I, I had I had the same sensation when I read Conrad Black's book, 2018, The Canadian Manifesto. The, you know, the same idea. He talks about there are some, some of the problems with the country, but also uh, the thesis of that book is that Canada's best days are ahead of us. And I got the same sense from the 1867 project. Was that by design? Was that one of the intentions behind uh, the creation of this project? Well, like most things, it developed sort of organically, right? But really, the 1867 project, the, the book, was a response to cancel culture and this notion we cannot be proud of Canada. Or again, the oak tree analogy that people are, you know, looking at the oak tree, wanting to pull it down or you know, poison the roots or tear, tear out the country by its roots. Um, that's disastrous. Uh, it's revolutionary. And those things always end badly. So um, it was really a response to the cancel Canada critics, I would say, but also, yes, to try and set an optimistic tone that, that says Canada is like an oak tree. Uh, we pruned off some limbs throughout our history, 
And, you know, we have some problems today. There's policies I don't agree with you know, that I'd prune off, so to speak, the tree. But nonetheless, uh, compared to what? Um, don't compare right. Canada and history you're now to perfection or your own utopian ideas. Um, compare it to 1800, 2000 years ago, uh, 3000 years ago. Um, you know, if you're going to compare, say, uh, you know, Canada's unfortunate, you know, discrimination against um, indigenous, you know, the indigenous populations, um, you know, in its history. Well, look, um, in 1960, Mao was killing his people. Uh, right. was about to kill more. Uh, we restored the vote to indigenous peoples. Um, should the vote have ever been taken away or not granted? No. Right. Uh, but that was a reality of history. But again, um, don't compare us to perfection, compare us to other countries. And again, look at the developments that have made us uh, more free and flourishing. So the point of the book was, was to try to get people to, again, think critically about some of the criticism in the in the uh, in the ether these days right from uh, some in the media some in politics some in academia yeah that's a brilliant book i enjoyed it very much the other one that i also pulled from your website is um uh the book it was called protestant liberty really mm -hmm. enjoyed this one uh in in the the, the prefaces who invented individual rights in canada uh james m forbes is the author uh this is a really fascinating book and uh in that I, I didn't realize how many of the ideas that sort of are in in Canadian uh, you know, parlance and part of our culture uh, are actually, uh, you know, come out of this period. And they're talked about in this book. Uh, this is a really, really interesting work, isn't it? It is. And one of the things we wanted to do when we set up the Aristotle Foundation was to focus pretty much uh, solely on Canadian issues. And when I interviewed Canadian authors, um, when I interview Canadian authors, as I did with James last year on his book, is to to give Canadian authors a bit of a podium, uh, a bit of a platform, so they can speak about their books. And, and James's book on the Protestant influence uh, in Canada and how it it uh, you know it led to uh, an expansion of rights. And again, this is kind of the importance of thinking about ideas or the history of ideas. Not all ideas are created alike. And in human history, uh, you know, there's been the development of monotheism. And then in the Western tradition, anyway, Judaism and Christianity had an immense influence in how we think of people. People don't have to be thought of as individuals. We, we can think of people as nothing more than uh, part of their tribe and then treat them accordingly. And, and that's, uh, as I mentioned before, I think incredibly dangerous. And one of the mm -hmm. positive developments, I would argue, in human history has been the growing recognition that the individual um, should be treated as an individual. Now, this obviously comes out of a certain um, religious conception, which you, you can share or not share, uh, but nonetheless, it comes out of the conception of the individual uh, that has a conscience or a soul um, in standing before God. And, and maybe Martin Luther's, you know, famous rebuke to the, the you know, the, the Catholic Church in the 1500s, you know, um, when he was, you know, battling some corruption in the church, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, and he believed he had a direct line to God. Um, you don't have to believe that, but that's where the origin of, uh, you know, or an example of some of the origin of, of an individualistic uh, approach to uh, to human beings has has uh, emanated from, uh, or even Christ's injunction in the New Testament, uh, you know, give what Caesar to Caesar's, to God what is God's. This notion of the separation of the individual from the collective or the state or the religious authority, this matters. So I, I just find these things, as you do, Leighton, um, interesting in terms of how they developed. Yeah. And once you start down the road to recognizing that individuals matter, well, then Protestant Canadians can no longer de deny, say, equal rights to Catholic Canadians. Right. right? Uh, it's why I'm such a fierce opponent of what Quebec does today and has done for a very long time. 
Uh, I'm not sure the French tradition is as robust on that as it should be, despite uh, claims to the contrary, um, and the discrimination against uh, some of the minorities in Quebec, including the English. But nonetheless, uh, James's book on Protestantism in Canada is is excellent. Yeah. Those are the, the two selections that I drew out. Are there any other books, just to hand it over to you and let you finish off our reading list today, Mark, any other books, and not necessarily ones that have been published uh, by the by the foundation, uh, but are there other books that you think uh, that that you would recommend to people taking in this podcast, or that uh, are, are maybe important to you, seminal in your education, that you would recommend to people? There are a lot there, but I can think of two off the top of my head. Uh, the Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, in part because of how he talks about friendship and it's an undervalued love. And then there's a book by the late Paul Johnson intellectuals and why that matters or is formulative, uh, you know, or mattered to my development. Uh, Johnson went into some detail in history on, on how intellectuals replaced basically priests and pastors, right? Re re replaced religious leaders as the source for inspiration. Um, and at least religious leaders, although they often get it wrong. Um, nonetheless, I suppose they could argue they had a, a conduit to God. What Johnson argues is that the intellectual class, which replaced, replaced the priestly class, you know, Rousseau and others, um, have become worshipped in their own right, uh, and yet they're flawed human beings. And he makes the point in the book, if I recall correctly, that, of course, intellectuals, even if they have a specialty in one area, we shouldn't necessarily accord to them expertise across all areas. But intellectuals have become the new prophets, right? What most yes. like Old Testament prophets or new messiahs. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to a disastrous ends. Rousseau or Marx in particular is an example of the Marxist ideas were disastrous for tens of millions of people in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So Intellectual by Paul Johnson is another book I'd recommend. Um, that uh, sounds like a brilliant book and seems to me his thesis was somewhat made out during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, where, you know, there was so there was essentially people, certain experts were exalted to uh, levels and we found out that uh, many of the ide their ideas were were flawed. I, I would include well, you know, Tony. Disclosure, yeah. Well, yeah. Full disclosure, I stayed out of that debate precisely because I'm not an epidemiologist. Yeah. Um, so um, there'll be a lot of cleanup, I'm sure, on COVID. But um, I didn't get into that. Other than I wrote one column during the pandemic to try and urge people to you know on how to reason properly. Yeah. But yeah. honestly, um, yeah, I understand some of the concerns and the criticisms, but yeah. I'll, I've also been loath to voice anything on that because um, one would have to be an expert on the data day in and day out. Yes. Uh, and many other things yeah. to I think have a, a um, an informed opinion on this. So yeah. um, precisely because I have too much respect uh, for people who spend their lives on certain things that I'm, I'm loath to kind of offer an uninformed opinion. No, I think Aristotle would uh, would agree with that approach. Uh, anyway, Mark, this has been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed so much uh, our hour together. I know that the people taking in the podcast will. Um, where can people find you? Obviously, there's the there's the website, uh, the, the AristotleFoundation.org, uh, is it? Uh, am I correct? It is, AristotleFoundation.org. And you also have your uh, your podcast, right? We do. We have a podcast. Um, uh, you know, you'll see uh, and be able to download from AristotleFoundation.org, and of course, you can buy the 1867 Project: Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled, from your local bookstore or online from Amazon and other sources. And we'll provide all those links. And again, Mark, thank you so much for being our special guest here on Gray Matter today. Thank you, Leighton. Mm -hmm.